Get him. Welcome, folks. Y'all come on in and make yourself at home. This here, well, this is the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Your home for all things Rolling Thunder. This episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast is presented by Mossy Oak Camouflage because everything is better in Bottomland. And Lucky Duck Premium Decoys, Masters of Deception. Welcome to another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. What's happening, buddy? Man, I've been stuffing so many turkey calls, my fingers hurt right now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I'm glad for a little break myself. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Well, it's podcast time, I guess. Uh, we got a pretty cool guest on today. A guy that I really, to be honest, don't know a whole lot about. I've, I've followed on Instagram, like I'm sure a lot of folks have, and he's kind of like a little bit like James Bond, like one of the most fascinating men in the world, you know? That's right. <laughs> Shane, are you still on the line? Yeah, I'm blushing over here, but I'm here. <laughs> so this is Shane Olson, and um, I guess, Shane, you're the owner of Habitat Solutions. Is that what you call your business? That is it, Habitat Solutions. Awesome. So uh, tell us all about you and – uh, thank you. I guess to begin, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're we're honored to have you on the show. And uh, man, your your line of work is like probably the hottest topic going right now in the mm-hmm. waterfowl world. I mean, everybody's trying to develop habitat. So I'm eager to just listen to you talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you guys giving me the time to to jump on here. Uh, yeah, I, you know, the habitat solutions is is honestly when being a kid or, you know, even a young adult, you know, not knowing exactly what you want to do for a living, you know, everybody's in college or whatever. And everybody says, Hey, what are you going to do for a living? Very few people can tell you before college what they want to do or what they're going to end up doing, you know, and that's honestly a testament to what Habitat Solutions is. It, it literally just, just poofed and it just (laughs) kind of, kind of came out, uh, and it's honestly, it's a miracle. It's a blessing to be able to tell people you, you, you can do what you absolutely love and passionately care about as a job. I feel very lucky to be able to say that because I know a lot of people can't, um, yep. I, you know, it, it was just, it was honestly just laid out in front of me and I, it was in front of me and I just, I just had to see it and be able to just take advantage of opportunities that kind of came in front of me. Mm-hmm. And it, I just, honestly, I just had people that came and hunted with us at the club and they said, you know, Hey, how do you, how do you manage a property of this size? What are you looking for? What are you, what are you trying to do? What's your goal? And you start talking to them a little bit about kind of your theory and your science behind it and your thinking. And then before long, they just say, Hey, what would it take to get you to come to my property and at least just look at it and tell me what I'm doing wrong, what I'm doing right, what I need to do better. And I, the first couple, 
I'd say the first year or two, I just felt extremely blessed and humbled to have somebody ask for my opinion. I wouldn't charge them. I didn't charge them any money. I was just like, hey, I'll drive an hour and a half and go look at your property and <laughs> I'll help you out, you know. And yeah. you, a lot of the guys are like, hey, you know, let me let me at least compensate you for your time and your gas. And I'd be like, okay, that's cool. And started getting just a few outside phone calls, just random numbers calling me because word of mouth is by far the strongest advertisement. You dang period. Right. You can be on. You can be on Instagram. You can be on any platform. You can have billboards, websites, whatever. But word of mouth is by far the strongest. Yep. Um, started having just some random guys call me and just say, "Hey, what do you charge to come to my property?" And still kind of in shock that somebody <laughs> wanted my opinion. You know, you you just start putting a dollar figure on it, and really before long you have what is on paper, a consulting company. Yeah. And, um, I did, you know, I still do a lot of consulting. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I do. I like the, I like the consulting side of it. I really love meeting new people. I love looking at different properties. If I could just drive around property all day long, that's probably one of my favorite things to do and mm. just look at it. Um, but trying to find the perfect client to take your train of thought and your your help and put it into action is probably the most frustrating thing. And I'll, I'll put that out there. I mean, guys will call you and ask for help, and then they you tell them, you know, you give them kind of some of the secrets, you give them some help, some tips, and they just kind of overlook it. And that's probably the most frustrating thing. That's probably why I don't like it the most. But um, <laughs> kind of getting back on the how it happened, people just call, you know, and so you start doing that and you start consulting and you start networking, you know. That's probably the biggest, the biggest tool that I have is just the network of people that I've met and the network of people that I've asked for help and that I've worked with. And it, I look at it as a spider web. You know, you kind of start in the middle. You kind of start working your way out. And before too long, people will say, well, hey, I got your number from this guy. Yeah, I remember him. And, you know, or vice versa. You know, people just – the waterfowl industry, as you guys know, and even the turkey hunting, duck hunting mm-hmm. management side is really small. Yep. It's really it's really small. And and if you if you get in it for long enough, you start knowing the same people and you start running into the same people and you know, you can name drop people and everybody knows who you're talking about. And, and that's really just kind of where I'm at now. It's, it's, uh, it's just, a, it's, it's just cool to be able to go look at duck stuff, you know, every day. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, we, you know, we've, we've really at Habitat Solutions, that was, I claim 2017 is kind of whenever I put myself out there to kind of make some money doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we've we've kind of got several different avenues. We do the consulting side. We do some development. We do some acquisition and selling. And uh, we've kind of just covered the whole, every every avenue of waterfowl property, 
one way or the other, one way or the other, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just kind of figure out what this client needs and how can I help him. Right. And, so, and, you know, and being a business, it's how can I make some money doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the end, that's the end result. Right. So you talked about kind of how you got into it from a skill set standpoint, were you a property manager or were you a, an outfitter or were you a heavy equipment operator or a little bit of all of that? Uh, a little bit of all I've, I've worn, I've worn every hat there is. Um, you know, I going through high school and college, I was a waterfowl guide for a, for a friend of mine here in town. And that kind of started the ball of networking that Mm -hmm. I talked about. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of ranching and, uh, believe it or not, I was in a feed truck with a horse. 10 hours a day for about five years of my life. And so that, you know, we got, we ran a lot of tractors, harvesters, planters, uh, dozers, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of where that kind of came into play. And, uh, in 2010, I got a job at, uh, Big Lake Duck Club outside Tulsa. Um, more of just a miracle kind of, like I said, you know, you, stuff stuff happens for a reason. I'm a firm believer for that. If you want something bad enough and you try hard enough, stuff opportunities will be laid in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to capitalize on those opportunities. And and in 2010, I had one of those opportunities. Uh, had a professor in college, still a really good friend of mine. Um, we did a lot of work in college with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And, uh, he called me one day and said, Hey, there's a, the guys over at Big Lake are looking for a manager. Would you be interested for that? Because one of the guys at U.S. Fish and Wildlife called me and asked if I had any students or former students that would be interested in it or capable. And I'm going to throw your name in the hat if, if you want me to. And I said, man, absolutely. That'd be, that'd be a dream job. You know, mm-hmm. everybody wants a dream job. Well, that was my dream job. <laughs> and, uh, it happened. So in 2010, I became a property manager and still am. I'm still here at the club. Uh, these are my guys, you know, all the guys here at the club, these are my guys and this is my property. Um, so yeah, I've been a heavy equipment operator, property manager, um, all of the above. And I think it takes that kind of skill set. You kind of got to stick your toe in the water. You kind of got to sample a lot of different fields, kind of feel, feel yourself out and figure out what you're good at, what you're bad at. Mm-hmm. Cause you really don't want to, you don't want to find out what you're bad at on the job. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, do. I mean, it doesn't work out good, you know? So, but yeah, definitely a property manager, uh, still am. And I, that's, that's really what I classify myself as, you know, consultant slash manager. Um, because that's really where Habitat Solutions is at right now. Yeah, we manage property for private individuals. Um, so yeah, property manager by far. So you still are working, I guess, semi full time for um, for Big Lake. Yeah, full time. I mean, you know, the guys at Big Lake are unbelievably hospitable. Uh, super good group of guys. That they understand that they can't hold me back. Um, 
I can, I could do what I want. Um, I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for those guys. Right. So I feel, you know, I have a lifelong, I, I, I really have a lifelong duty to make sure that these guys have the best waterfowl ground, um, that someone can provide them. And, and in return, they've given me the freedom to pursue a dream. That's awesome. So give us just a little bit of a history of Big Lake Shooting Club. I, I don't know anything about that. Um, not a lot of people do. It's kind of a, it's kind of a diamond, diamond in the rough because, you know, you go over in the Mississippi flyway, everybody is a member of a club. You know, there's, there's duck clubs or, or whatever everywhere. When you come over here in my neck of the woods in Oklahoma, people don't, you know, people don't know what a club is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we are, as far as I know, uh, probably the oldest duck club founded and still in existence in Oklahoma. And I would, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bet any money because I don't have any proof, but I would say we're probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest duck club in the central flyway. Wow. Um, 1916 is when it started. Wow. So, um, is it, is yeah, it, it's just, you know, is it an equity deal? Like you guys own yep, your ground? It's a, they... it's a full equity, full equity split. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and I'm assuming y'all have deer, turkeys, ducks. Yeah. You know, you know, the turkeys, turkeys in Oklahoma are a little different than, than, you know, like Eastern turkeys. We have Rios, we have some hybrids. Right. You go east. So they're real nomadic. They real, they come through and they leave and they, they kind of just do their own thing. This really isn't Rio habitat down here. Mm. It's just we're in the river bottom. We're flooded. We're swampy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not dry. Um, it would really be conducive to an eastern, uh, but we just don't have them here. Uh, so yeah, but we have the deer and the, we have deer and duck. It's basically you. our main focus is here at the club. Yeah. And so, uh, can you tell us like? some statistics like how many members y'all have or how many, you know, acres you manage or anything like that? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just basically, I'll just start you at the front and kind of give you the, the founding, uh, story. Okay. Um, and it, it's all secondhand. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 35, so I, <laughs> I wouldn't there. lie, but I'm, I'm just, <laughs> But we do we do have a couple of members that have, that have been around from the, about the sixties. Oh wow! So I can you know I can give you that far back, uh, and then you know we have minutes to everything. Everything's documented from the first meeting ever. Wow! And I've wow. read I've read all the I've read all the books and everything, and it's it's crazy. But huh. um, so in in nineteen sixteen, uh, a group of guys. Uh, including one of the, the guys that owned the property. This was all just swampland, just, you know, floodplain, not good for nothing. And and one of the guys or a couple of the guys had the idea, like, hey, let's just make this like a men's club. And, I mean, we're talking 1916. I don't I don't know when, like, the Model T's and all that stuff come out, but, you know, this was, this was way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, – so I don't know how the whole property got acquired. I don't know if a guy gave it, you know, or if, if guys bought into the property and then he got his money back. I'm not sure about that, but 
1916, there were 16 members, um, all equal owners of the property. And uh, they, you know, is basically a, it's just basically, it's basically a big lake. And I mean, the lake is still here. It's the second largest natural lake in Oklahoma. Whoa. Uh, it's like 276 acres. Wow. Now there's a there's another lake down by Texoma, uh, Leaper Lake, that's claimed to be a larger lake, but it has a lot more man-made manipulation to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how big the lake was itself when it started, but the lake here at Big Lake is just a natural oxbow lake, 276 acres, and uh, you know you got to think back back then, ninety. 90- 99% of the lakes in Oklahoma are man-made. They're all Corps of Engineer lakes. So you go way back then, this was the largest body of water in Oklahoma. Hmm. And so it was just a waterfowl mecca. And uh, all the guys, you know, they used to, there was blinds all around the lake. I think there was like 20-something blinds back in the day, just all around the lake. And, uh, that's all they hunted. They just hunted the lake. And, uh, we have 700 acres of green timber, but they, back then, you know, it was like, who wants to hunt in the timber? It's like, we want, we just want to go on the lake. And, uh, you know, I've heard stories and I've seen, we got some pictures of before limits and all that kind of stuff. The guys just, you know, with two model 12s and they've got 150 mallards on the wall, you know, and just, you know, just before conservation and before regulation, um, that's what it was. I, I literally, I tore down the live decoy pen about eight years ago. Gosh. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was all dilapidated and tore it down. One of the members that actually died not, you know, four, five, six years ago, I thought it was a dog kennel. And he's like, no, that was a decoy pen. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, back in the day, a lot of decoys and no limits and yep. all that kind of stuff. But uh, when you say the river, you know, it, when you say the river bottom, are, are y'all the Arkansas River or is it a different river? Vertigris. Vertigris were a. I got gotcha. w- What I call a, you know, in my line of work, I call them, you know, a main tributary, being the Vertigris, the Arkansas, Mississippi, Canadian, you know, stuff like that, and then you have your secondaries, which are your feeder creeks. Then you have your tertiaries, which are kind of your smaller creeks. But, yeah, we're on a main – the main river channel, the Vertigris River, um, you know, it's 100 yards wide, yeah, 25-foot deep. So it's a big river. Okay. And uh, used to be uh, the river would get out, you know, just like just mm-hmm. like the White does and the Cache does and the Mississippi. You know, well, the Mississippi has been channelized a lot, and and that's what happened to this river here is, uh, I don't know the date, probably in the 60s or the 70s, uh, it was channelized for barge traffic. Mm -hmm. And that really, really killed the ecosystem Mm -hmm. and the habitat down here in the bottom. Yep. Because used to be, you know, the river would get up, it'd flood all the hardwood, Mm -hmm. it'd flood the lake, it'd flood everything, and then it would go back down as the river receded. But since they channelized it, it basically shut us off. And that's when the development of the impounding water and the pumping of the water and all of that stuff kind of started in the 60s and the 70s. 
due to the channelization of the river. And that's why we have what we have today. Um, was a lot of mitigation, honestly, from the Corps of Engineers for the repercussions of them basically shutting off the largest natural lake in north central Oklahoma. Uh, they, they helped us, you know, get it under control and get it manageable and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're fully self-sustainable now to where we can pump out of the river, flood all our GTR, flood our lake, do all that to ensure that the ecosystem can, can go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, the, especially the history, just the length of time. I mean, that's like the Peabody Hotel in Memphis kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> a bunch of guys. Oh, can, yeah. You know, if you can go back. Over. You can go back in the minute. And uh, basically, we, you know, we have our meetings. We have our annual meeting. Then we have a management meeting. And, and we have president, vice president, treasurer, all that kind of stuff. And it's all, it's all appointed. But you can go back in the minutes and you can, you can read, you know, our meeting's supposed to be on a certain date every year. Now it's kind of changed a little bit just because guys are so busy all over the country, but, um, they would send telegraphs to, to, (laughs) you know, you have, you have 30 days to respond to this telegraph, uh, about the annual meeting, um, and, you know, stuff like that. It was an hour and a half. We're, we're 20 minutes now from, downtown and it was an hour and a half back then Jeez, on dirt road to get so, that distance wow yeah so yeah the history is really i you could go on and on and i've got some guys that could talk for hours about the history and the stories and all that kind of stuff but it it's no different than some of your really nostalgic clubs over in arkansas sure. and memphis and stuff like that that have been around forever but it's just we're we're where we are which is yep. kind of not where we're supposed to be, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you, you have all the guys that, you know, they know exactly what I'm talking about in Arkansas and Memphis and, and all of that kind of stuff. But then you talk to the guys over here and they're, you know, they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. In terms of clubs and stuff, just the functioning of a club. Yeah. yeah just the ebb yeah. and flow of just, <laughs> you know, members coming and going, the democracy kind of deal, yeah. the hierarchy, yeah. uh, you know, just, what it and I think in order to have a club, you have to have one. You have to have a really good group of guys that get 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 along, mm-hmm. which we've we've gone through our highs and our lows. But you have to have a really good set of rules and bylaws. They can't be amended unless it's unanimous vote, and people have to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And because that's the number one reason that I see clubs that I manage fall apart is due to resistance of the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one, it, one guy's you have interpretation's rules, different than another, and they get crossways absolutely. and all that kind of stuff. You can't, yeah. you can't have any gray. There's yeah. no gray. It is black and white rules. Yeah. You know, and we've, we've got a lot of original rules from when this thing started, you know. Are, are but, most of your customers – I'm going to change gears on you for just a second. Are most of your customers clubs, or are they individuals – or is it split between the two? Uh, I, I do have a little bit of everything. The majority of my business is private owners. Okay. A uh, single owner. Yeah. Um, single family, single owner. Um, and it's 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 just really just snowballing, just as fast as you can run behind it. Because a lot of these guys are coming from the club atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And they want multiple their own place. owners. Yep. They want their own place. Yeah. I get it. 
I compare it to the, I compare it, you know, to the, to the whitetail deer craze of the nineties. Yep, exactly. When, when, when guys found out that, Hey, I could go buy four or five, 600 acres. I can grow my own deer. I can let deer walk. I can show up when I want. And I have full control of this property. Yep, and I can take my kids. <laughs> I mean, I can take my kids. I'm, I can do what I want. I don't have to follow the rules. Um, we are there now yep. for the waterfowl you're, industry on the man on the management side. You're absolutely right. That we've been talking about that in my. I'm 40 in my lifetime. The shift from the best duck hunting in our flyway was the public woods in Arkansas to. Now the best hunting is the private woods in Arkansas. You know, some a lot of those, mm-hmm. a lot of those old clubs that you're talking about, those nostalgic clubs. You know, they they've always done well, but they've but but they've not had the kind of leg up over the public woods like they do now, simply because mm-hmm. the public woods were so expansive and so big. You know, it's such a giant piece of water; it just draws so many so many ducks. But, yeah. But there's such a, because because there's so many private landowners now farming for ducks and managing their habitat and managing their pressure. I mean, the private landowner is just absolutely kicking Arkansas game and fish right in the teeth um, in yep, terms of just beating them at their own game. And that's no that's no shade toward Arkansas game and fish. It's just they're not keeping up with the times. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. You know they. I, I I deal with it all the time. You know I've got clients from Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi. Three of the strongest Mississippi flyway states, in my opinion, those guys are like, hey, the public's overcrowded. The resource is getting limited. What can I do mm-hmm. to up my odds of having a good hunt? Right. right. And guys are willing to pay for it. Yep. So a guy like that, let's just say a guy from, you know, northwest Mississippi, like in the Mississippi River Delta you know, an hour mm-hmm. south of Memphis. Uh, are you, does that guy call you, are you going to him and, and doing a, a consulting gig? Like, is that part of your business or are you, what do you yeah, do with that uh, call, Yeah, calling me all the time. <laughs> I, I get, you know, I get guys, I really, I get guys, the Mississippi Flyway is where I get most of my traction. I bet. But the Central Flyway is where I get most of my work. Yeah. Um, and, and I've just, you know, I'm a, I'm a one man guy. I, I have six employees that work for me, but it's not worth my time and not in a bad way. It's not worth my time to go to Mississippi and help a guy out for a one-time deal. It's just not feasible. You know, mm-hmm. I can't teleport to Mississippi and come back and move all your equipment. So I've kind of, I've kind of figured, yeah, I've figured out a way to help that guy. And basically that's, with the technology from COVID and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's like, Hey, conference calls, FaceTime, uh, you know, really just over the phone. And if I can see what you're dealing with, or if I can wrap my mind around it, mm-hmm. I can help you. Mm-hmm. And I, I help a lot of guys that way, just over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, the what stuff about- that I go, you know, I was just Go going to say, what about technology like LIDAR and, um, I mean, all that kind of oh, stuff? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you can remotely kind of help somebody build a Oh, plan. yeah. Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll be straightforward with the guy. I'll be like, hey, you know, my time, you know, I'm like a lawyer, you know. 
my time's not free, but I'm willing, I'll help you out any way I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if, if he's like, man, what's that look like? And we agree. Yeah. We can pull LIDAR. We can pull aerials. You know, he can send me direct pictures of what, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020, what that looked like, you know, what kind of vegetation he has, what kind of plumbing he has for his pipes and his risers and his pumps. And, and really it's, it's just getting everything up to date, getting invasives under control, getting the desires growing and get your plumbing right and doing it at the right time. I mean, that's really it. So I help a lot of guys over the phone. I really, I, I love it. I, I like being able to talk to guys and, it goes back to the networking thing, you know, it's, if I can help that, if, if that guy can get off the phone from me and be better off than he was before the phone call, I did something. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, are your six employees, are they mostly equipment operators? What, what are they doing? Can, give me a rundown on your crew. I've got a little bit of everything, you know, um, I have some guys that can do just about anything. Um, the guys that I look to hire is if you have good work ethic, no bad habits, I can get along with you. Um, as long as you take instruction, do what I need you to do, I'll teach you everything I know. And some guys that come to me are a little farther ahead. Some guys, you know, they just have the foundation and they want to learn. And those are the guys that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got, I got a fireman that works for me. So he's at the fire station a couple of days a week. And then he comes to me. I got a lot of, I got several guys that are guides for outfitters this time of year. And then they come back to me in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got a couple of guys that I've inherited on ranches that we manage or big farms that we manage. You know, they're basically the caretaker of the farm. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything about duck management or waterfowl management, but they know the property like the back of their hand. And so basically I use them as, you know, pawns, not in a bad way. I just tell them what to do and direct them what right. to do and when to do it and how to do it. Yeah. And they're the muscle. Um, so really, you know, I get asked all the time about, you know, working and jobs and job opportunities and stuff like that guys with college degrees and i don't really give a crap about a college degree it it yeah you might have a little bit of book smart but if you don't have any common sense or you don't have any any ability to to learn or figure stuff out that's the biggest thing i'm running into now is i could have a guy that's smart enough to be a doctor but if he can't figure out how to get a pump running, you know, or he can't yeah. figure out, you know, why, why is the water not running downhill? I mean, <laughs> why's the water? Not? I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't do anything with that, you know. So yeah. I'd much rather take a guy with common sense that can figure stuff out. He's a problem solver. Mm-hmm. I'll teach you anything you need to know about managing ducks. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what about in your lifetime? Has the hunting in Oklahoma gotten better, or has it gotten worse, or has it stayed the same? Definitely gotten better. Um, you know, this year, this year I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna I'll, I'll stand up on my 
humble horse here and just tell you it's not the best year I've ever seen. It's probably one of the worst years I've seen in Oklahoma. Um, but I think what makes Oklahoma so – what makes Oklahoma stand out so much is the drastic weather shift, the drastic weather pattern. Mm. Um, you know, we, we were on – Tuesday – Saturday morning or Sunday morning, we were 22 degrees, blowing out of the north, 20 miles an hour, full moon, just just pounding out of the north. Friday's supposed to be 80 degrees out of the south, you know? And so, in my opinion, what makes Oklahoma good is we get the northern migration, we also get the southern rebound, then we get another northern migration, we get another southern rebound. And those, those ducks really just yo-yo right on top of us. Mm. One, you know, you get up into North Dakota, South Dakota, winter sets in, winter's there. Mm-hmm. Everything freezes up, everything locks up. It's there. It's, the ducks, the birds are moving out. But when you go down to Texas, Louisiana, southern Mississippi, that drastic northern front it, it, it takes a, I mean, it takes an Arctic blast. Like when you're watching the weather and they say Arctic blast is coming, that's what it takes to get the birds down south, deep south. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen, those guys don't get birds. Right. And so Oklahoma just kind of sits right in the middle to where it doesn't take an Arctic blast. It just takes a really good cold front. You might not get the full migration, but you might get the front 20%. And then they might go back up to Kansas. And then in four or five days, they might kind of trickle back down again. And if you do get that Arctic blast, it pushes them on through down to Texas and Louisiana, Mississippi, but then they rebound back through you. Mm -hmm. Because a bird, you know, ducks don't have to make it to the Gulf. I mean, that's, they're not wired to go from Canada to South Louisiana every year. They don't have a, you know, A to B. All they're trying to do is move far enough south to survive. Right. Yep. And so that's what I hear a lot of the guys in South Texas and and Louisiana. Now, teal and pintails and stuff like that, they're really temperamental. So they're going to really move. But the mallards, the big dabblers, they're going to move just far enough to survive and be comfortable. They want to be north. They want to be as close to their breeding grounds and their nesting grounds mm-hmm. as they can be. Right. They're only getting pushed out because the conditions get rough. So, in my opinion, that's what makes Oklahoma good. It's really interesting that, you know, the talk in Arkansas is that the flyway has shifted west. And, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, what do you think about that? Uh... I feel like our flyways in Arkansas right now, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that. it's just, I think it's just the easy, I think it's just the easy out. Yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. really knows, you know. Yeah. I was actually reading some articles the other day of some, you know, forty-year data that basically concluded that said we don't have enough data to prove it yeah. over, you know, forty years. Mm-hmm. So I think. I think, you know, what makes, what makes waterfowl so deceptive and it, and us as hunters and managers, the word deceptive is the right word. When you're the duck or the 
you know, the waterfowl, it's survivability. So they feel pressure. They sense pressure. They have, they only need a few things to survive. Mm. So they're going to, they're going to go where they need to go year to year to year. Um, I've talked to some biologists, some good friends of mine that are, you know, that's their waterfowl biologists. That's what they do. They go to Canada and do the aerial, aerial surveys. They do the nest surveys. They do everything. And I, I straight up asked him, I said, is it even possible for the Mississippi flyway to shift to the central or vice versa? And they don't want to tell you because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want the weight on their shoulders, but basically the answer is no. They said, now, there are birds that start out in Canada that travel south in the central flyway. They get hooked up with a pair or a mate. They might bounce two, 300 miles one direction, east or west, and they might go back home in the other flyway. Mm-hmm. But the odds of them actually making it halfway down and then shifting moving moving flyways is it just it's really not it's not all they're headed south yeah when they point their when they point their bill south they're going south they really kind of have to make their mind up at the nesting ground or the breeding ground and then the wintering ground and i'm not the guy to be telling you that what's right and what's wrong i'm just telling you what I've been told because I've asked the same question, but I know half of the bands that we kill are banded in Louisiana in February. Mm-hmm. So they they and, they come down through the Mississippi Flyway one year and then come down through Central Flyway another year? Is that kind of what you're alluding to? It, yeah, it's either that or they go down the Central Flyway and jump over to the Louisiana and then go back up the Central Flyway because – you know, we've, we've killed them in December and January, and they were banded the previous winter in Louisiana after the season. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so one way or the other, that bird has made it to his wintering ground. Mm-hmm. And he has went back north and then came back south. Yeah. So I, th- I don't really do – do I don't think they shifted. I just think that they've – they move to where they need to go and yeah it, it, yeah shift i get what you're saying shift as a po- as like ha- come halfway down and then shift west or something like that i i was really more talking about um the talk i hear is that say say if there were 100 ducks that used to come to arkansas every year that 60 of those ducks now come down through the central flyway for whatever reason. That's the kind of talk. You know what I mean? That that like I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think the answer that I've the information that I've gathered and put together, the answer is no. Yeah, that's interesting. I would say no too, personally. I that's I, that coincides. You know, the, just the guys that I talk to on a daily basis, um I talk to a lot of guys in Arkansas, I talk to a lot of guys in Louisiana, I talk to guys in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri. I mean, Arkansas is where it's at right now. I've got guys over there hunting right now. I've got guys that hunted last week. I've got guys that are hunting in western Oklahoma and western Kansas right now. Mm-hmm. The birds are in Arkansas right now. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. Now, whether or not whether or not it's all the birds, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But um, definitely the, the hot spot is 
Mississippi Flyway right now. Yeah. And you know, there's guys in there's guys in North Dakota and Nebraska, northern Kansas, Kansas City area that are just they've got birds right now. And the, our birds just haven't come down yet. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just happy. They're they're held up right there and they're just not moving. Right. I feel like that that across a long period of time, call it 20 years or 30 years, you may have certain years where a, a larger percentage uses one flyway than another, you know, for, from from the prairie, let's just say, you know, from Saskatchewan mm-hmm. and Alberta and, you know, the west side of Manitoba. Like, I, I think that from year to year, you may have a higher percentage go to the central flyway versus a higher percentage go to the Mississippi just based on habitat. And I don't really have any proof for that, but I, I feel like that where there's the best habitat, habitat, there tends to be more ducks. Is that fair? I mean, that's the secret to the ball game. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's honestly my my business model. You yeah. know, it's it's uh, ducks. I I can you know a lot of there's a lot of guys that are trying to wrap their head around the waterfowl management stuff and. It's honestly pretty simple, but there's, you know, the ducks are the variable mm-hmm. and the weather is the variable. But I, I, I usually, I try to, when I, when I meet a client or I'm dealing with the management plan, more times than not, the guys are deer hunters. And so I, I always go about it if I have to as a deer approach. And when, and I help, I help guys with deer too, you know, I mean, that's just kind of mm-hmm. what I do. But when, when you start going the, anal- the an- analogy route, you say, okay, you have deer, you have your property, you, you have bedding areas, you have feeding areas, and you have corridor, and you're managing deer by age, okay? So if you can provide adequate bedding, adequate food, adequate corridor from food to bedding, there's really no reason for that deer to leave your property. Right. Other other than pressure. Right. Low pressure. Okay. Well, when we look at it on the waterfowl side, and there's a lot of equity in the deer, you know, in order to get a mature deer to, to maturity, I'd say the average average age is five. And so you basically have to grow a deer from a fawn hmm. and let him reach the age of five. You know, some, South Texas and stuff is seven or eight. Iowa, Kansas, you know, six, seven. But five is a good round number. You have a lot of equity in that deer. You have a lot of resources in that deer. Hmm. Well, when you get to the waterfowl side of it, it's no different. You throw water into the occasion. That's a variable. I call, I, that kind of gets classified as weather. But you have your bedding area. Instead of a bedding area, you have a refuge. A refuge is a place of rest, a place of not a lot of pressure, a good place, a cover. So that's your bedding area. Then you have your feed, which you choose to hunt or not hunt, just like in deer hunting. And then you have your corridor between A and B, and that's your loaf. So that's your waterfowl version of corridors, the loaf. But you have you have zero equity in it because those those ducks aren't those ducks aren't 
sleeping on your property or they're not staying on your property for a long period of time. So that's what makes the duck hunting management stuff so fun is because as long as there's ducks in the area, they're going to use your property. Mm-hmm. If it if it has all of the above. And when you start breaking it down like that, the deer hunting guys can sit there and say, I, I, I understand what you're talking about now. Mm-hmm. And so when we're managing for ducks, we it's cover, food, and refuge. That's the three things with water, of course. But those are the three things that, if you want a really good, well-rounded property, you have to have those three things. Now, you you hear of guys, you know, that are just smashing ducks on a regular basis, and they've probably got the loaf. They've probably got the the midday. You know, they've, they've already went and ate. They're just going to go sit or they're going to gather up and, you know, stage mm-hmm. before they go to feed again or before they go to roost. And as long as you don't bust the feed and as long as you don't bust the roost, you're going to have really good success on the loaf or the stage. Mm-hmm. And and so that's, that's what I try to tell we, my guys. We would know. refer to that as traffic. I mean, in a, in a – Yeah, you're running traffic. Yeah. Exactly. You're running yeah. traffic. Yeah. And – that falls into the pressure category. Um, you know, so it's like Biomita over there in Arkansas and Hurricane and stuff like that. That stuff blows my mind that guys, there can be 30, 40, 50 groups a day go in there and kill ducks, but all they're doing is running traffic, mm-hmm. really. Um, and so when we, when we take a property under our wing and we try to develop it and, and put our twist on it, those are the three things that we really look for in order to make a really good, well-rounded property that's going to work more times than not is you got to have those three things. Yeah, that's, that's so, really, that, that's great. I mean, that, that confirms so many things I've heard over here, you know, it, it, pressure is at a, seems like it's at an all time high. I know the government agencies keep saying that there's not enough license sales and all that, but man, there's, seems I, like, I've, yeah, I, I don't know the numbers, but I think the license sales are up from what I've heard. Okay. But you know, I, I don't I have no statistic behind that. That's just personal bias, personal opinion. Yeah. But yeah. I mean I mean if it's back to the deer thing, you start pressuring deer, what's their escape? They go nocturnal on you. They don't really leave, they just go nocturnal. Mm-hmm. The duck's escape is he's jumping ship. They're going to move. You're going to blow them out. And it's a renewable resource. Instead of a deer, instead of you waiting on another 170-inch deer to move onto your property, with the ducks, you just have to wait till the next weather shift. And right. if, if, you know, location is everything on a really good duck property, if there's ducks in the area and you give them those criteria, they're going to stop on your property. I mean, it's... You almost want to say guaranteed, but you can't use guaranteed. You know, guys will hold you to it. But <laughs> right, right. Well, um, what's the rest of the season look like for you? How how long does y'all's duck season last? We go to the last Sunday in January. Okay. So okay. you know, it's typically the thirtieth ish. Yeah. Thirty first. Some years, you know, 29th, Some years, it just kind of depends. But it's the last Sunday in January. Okay. You know, I think. If I was going to give, if I was going to give our duck season a scale to date, probably a C, 
I mean, we're, we're, our harvest numbers are still on par. Um, we're extremely dry. So I feel like that, even though we're down on duck numbers right now, I feel like they're super concentrated on the water. Um, so instead of us roosting 10, 15,000 ducks, you know, we're roosting three to four, but what ducks we have are acting like ducks. So that's good. Um, you know, uh, so the weather, the weather doesn't look great for us, honestly, in the future. Doesn't look like there's any of those Arctic blasts coming, but I know those can kind of pop up out of nowhere, but we're definitely not having our best year, but it's, it's not our worst year. You know, it's guys are killing ducks. You know, it's, it is slow right now. I think we hunted this morning, two groups and, I think we had 26 greenheads on two groups. So, I mean, the guys are happy. Guys are killing ducks. Now, I do have some properties that we manage that don't have water, which is uh, kind of a weird, weird thing. We're just extremely dry. So those guys are definitely hurting on harvest numbers. But um, I feel like if, if, you know. Are are most of your clients able to drill wells? Like, are you in Mm -mm. that? No, no, we're really, we're really not in the well country. Um, you know, if, if I can punch a hole and get 400 GPM, 300 GPM, that'd be really good. Wow. It's not like, it's not like over there on the Mississippi where these guys are running these 12 inch cases and getting 2000 GPM. Um, the thing that we have is we do have a lot of tributary water. Um, so if you apply for a permit and get some water use permits, you can relift um, and. Yeah, you just relift out. And, yeah. And, you know, nothing over here is laser leveled. Nothing over here is precision. So we have fall. So as long as our, as long as our water's above our feet when we bring it out of the river, we can do just about anything we want with it. So, um, yeah, that, that we pump. Yeah. 95% of our stuff's pumped. Um, we do have some stuff set up for runoff. Um, but, Definitely, definitely a lot of relay. Yeah, yeah. We, I have a small place that we've been working on, and it's mostly we catch runoff. But in a dry year like this, boy, it really makes you want to. It does drill you know, all we, the wells we, you we, can possibly afford. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I mean, we. It's definitely something we've looked into. It's just more times than not, it's just not feasible. Yep. You know, when you start, you start putting pen to paper and. That's right. You know, I, I need 300, I need 300 acre feet of water at 400 GPM. It just, yeah, it that's, doesn't you got to start pumping in June. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's not even factor in the soak and evaporation and, exactly. and stuff like that. So it just doesn't make sense to do a well on that. But, you know, I can put a, I can put a 16 inch relift in and I can, mm. I can make white water, you know, so mm-hmm. that that's really how a lot of our stuff does. And we We've got, like I said, we've got several properties this year that went underwater two or three times, four feet, when we were trying to do some construction and some development. Those suckers are bone dry right now. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, but I, you know, that's not that's not our weather pattern. We're typically right. wetter than that. So. Right. Do Do you have uh, since you're mostly relifting and don't have wells? Have you worked on any properties where you didn't have um, a river or a creek or some water source to relift, like? 
what do you do there? Do you build a reservoir and, and relift or what? Mm, do you do? Those are called lemons, but <laughs> yeah, the, you know, I mean, yeah, I've got, I've, I've dealt with some clients that basically said, Hey, this is what I have. This is all I have. What can I do to make it better? And that's when the LIDAR really comes into play and the runoff map and stuff like that to try to start capturing every ounce of water that is going to run off that property. Um, and you just, you just have to be open with them and just yeah. say, Hey, it, these are your odds. This is what you have. We're going to make this, we're going to make lemonade. Yeah. It's, this is what, you know, but on the other hand, when we have guys come to us and they said, Hey, I'm ready to buy. Uh, I want to, I want to find something. Then we basically, we, we do have boxes that have to be checked before, yeah it passes the sniff test, you know, it's yeah. having location, having access to water, um, is probably the number one box. Mm-hmm. And then close to that is probably just the undulation and the terrain. You know, what, what can we make? What can we develop on it? Or what does it have? If it has water and, and the ground is good and soil, you know, it has, it has clay or it has, some dense soil that we can actually hold water and it has some fall or something where we can develop. I mean, those are really the three boxes that need to be checked. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll, we'll tell the client, Hey, you need to, you need to proceed on this. You need to make an offer. You need to buy it. And then, uh, we'll come in and get it going. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, that's <clears throat> it, clearly you guys have, uh, changed the game in some sense. Um, I mean, there's there's a handful of folks kind of doing what you're doing, but not as many over here as there probably should be. I, and I don't know if that's just because there's there's just a lot of habitat in East Arkansas. It's kind of natural habitat, and so there's you're you're building habitat in places where there probably wasn't a whole bunch of habitat. But um, I think it's fascinating that that there's a whole industry of of this sort of thing that's just sort of appeared in the last twenty years. You know. Yeah, I mean, that's, and when you ask me, you know, like, how, how did I get started in doing what I do? I mean, that, it literally just evolved. It literally, it yeah. just, it was just laid out in front of me and it was like, hey, there's a niche. There's a, there's a group of guys that are looking for a product and the product's not there. What can I do to, to get it there and make a product that's marketable and that has value? And, you know, anywhere from, buying it, developing it, and reselling it. We've done that um, from taking existing property and making it better. We've done that. Uh, connecting buyers to sellers or vice versa, you know, we've done that. And ultimately, the end goal for me is, is I want my thumbprint on it. I want. I will do whatever I need to do to get you to acquire the property or if you already own the property, I want to be able to manage it and make it better. And there's very few properties out there. There, there's, there are properties out there that fit the criteria of perfect, but there's always the majority that can use a slap on the butt and be better. And that's, that's what's fun to me is being able to have a vision and be able to look at a property, have done it long enough to be able to just, in your mind, see it, 
just kind of like I, I'd say, you know, like Nicholas does with golf courses, you know, he can stand in a hay meadow and say, you know, there's, there's hole one, there's hole two, there's hole three, stuff like that. To be able to do that is what's fun. Mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy looking at finished properties that don't need anything, but the real fun is making something out of nothing. Yep. I get that. That's, that's the fun part. And there's a lot of raw ground out there that is really conducive to, to waterfowl. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of the ground that I'm looking at used to be wetlands and marshes and stuff like that. And it's been turned out of the, you know, wetland and waterfowl and marsh to ag. And there's so much of that ag property that can be bought that, all you have to do is just do a few little things on it to revert it back to a wetland. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what – I'm not trying to take anything from the farmer. I'm just – it's just really neat to look at a soybean field or whatever and just say, hey, if I had a dozer, a couple pipes, and a couple risers, I could put this whole soybean field underwater and it'd be a, be a moist soil unit in three years. And – when you look back a hundred years ago, that's probably what that was because the beavers, that's probably my favorite thing is to come look at a property in February or March that's full of water and look what the beavers have done Mm -hmm. and then just figure out how to recreate what they did. Yeah. I've got to take out what they did, but uh, there's so many times I've engineers, (laughs) they're, they're hydrologists. They're, They're the they're the master engineer, yeah. They, I mean, there's so many times that I've went and I've I've stood on a beaver dam, and I've I've set a benchmark, a pin, and I'll take the elevation of the beaver dam, and I'll take the elevation of the water, and I'll say, we'll be back in July, and we're just going to recreate this, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it because you get to see it, you know, you get to see the finished product, you get to see the water at the full full pool you got to figure out what your dirt needs to be. And other than trial and error and, and mechanical engineering and stuff of trying to figure out the math and all that, I, I get to look at it and say, this is good, but with another six inches, this would be better mm-hmm. yeah. because I could gain so much more. And so I'll take the beaver elevation of the dam, add six inches to it, and come July we'll put another six inches on there and it'll be, you know, drivable and manageable mm-hmm. and that it's that that's what's crazy is the beavers have been doing it forever you know back in the day the beavers would just dam up a creek and make a hundred acres of wetland and nobody would touch it <laughs> right and do you find so, that from a management perspective that you're working with the beavers or against the beavers or y'all pulling in the same direction i hear mixed reviews on <clears throat> uh you have to coexist. You can't. There is no way. You can mitigate the beaver population to a point, and it. I'm a. It's a love hate relationship because there's been so many times that I've come in and I've looked at a beaver dam and, you know, and you just basically say thank you for showing me what needs to be done, but I've got to destroy it. And you don't mess with my stuff. I won't mess with your stuff. Kind of deal. But you cross the line, and there's going to be repercussions, you know. So I'm just glad beavers don't have dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, I mean, 
I, I've man. literally rolled up. I've rolled up on the job, and I'll say, you know, this is unbelievable. And they'll go, well, there's a beaver dam over there in the bottom, you know, and I'll say, well, let's go look at it. And there'll be a 300-yard beaver dam across this bottom. Yeah. And you're like, good grief. This, is, this, has, been, this has been here since the 80s. Yeah. It's the you know, wonder of the, the world, yeah. Yeah, you know, the timber's dead, of course, because the water didn't get off. But, I mean, that that's generations of beavers mm-hmm. to do that. And, you you know, you you have to learn to coexist. You have to learn what the beavers are thinking. You know, you kind of have to get in their head of, like, if I don't put a beaver guard on this riser, then come tomorrow it's going to be plugged full of dirt. So I'm just going to make it so hard for him to do it that he's not going to want to do it and – Really, we've got the same goal for about six months out of the year. We have the same goal. I'll give you all the water you want. But when I need to get it off my trees or yeah, I need to move it, you know, you need I need to you to, to just leave it. <laughs> yep, I need you to leave it alone. And if you don't, you know, if you don't, the, you're going to pay the price, you know. So, but, um, but yeah, it, I, I think there, I think there's a beaver dam in Canada. I don't know. You need to look it up. I've it's, heard about this. Do you ever watch, do you ever watch the show uh, What on Earth mm-hmm. with the satellites and stuff? Yeah. So it's... they found this deal up in Canada, and they were like, what is it? You know, it's whatever. <laughs> and it was like, it was a beaver dam that was over a mile long. Jeez. And it was, you know, 20 foot, t- 20 foot tall, a mile long. And they said that, you know, this thing has been added on for like 300 years. And... Wow. It's it's just crazy to think, you know, what they can do with two little hands that are, mm. you know, like T Rex hands. You know, like this is <laughs> this is what you have, and you know, I cuss them every time we got to get in a pipe and start moving that crap. And you're like, it would take me an hour with a backhoe to do this, and these little suckers did it overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, with two little hands, and they always get it packed so tight. Like I have, I mean, I know they got the tails and everything, but it's it's always amazing. Every time. It, oh, it is. And when you start, you know, when you, when you start, there was a girl that when I was in college, she did her senior stuff on, on beaver dams and stuff. And they actually have like foundations. They actually have, you know, structural logs that they'll lay in there and weave together. And then they pack it with the mud and the moss and the, you know, vegetation. Mm-hmm. And then they put more supporting structure on it. I mean, to, to an untrained eye, you know, it just looks like a mound of dirt and sticks. But when you really start digging one out, you know, it's it's just crazy what they can do. It is. Flying um, buttresses. You know. Yeah. 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 You're like, how in the world, like, how did you get this 12-inch <laughs> log that's 20 feet long in that pipe? Yeah. You know? like <laughs> Straight down three dudes, three, yeah. three 200-pound dudes couldn't carry this log. <laughs> And you That's suck exactly it down right. this pipe, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's crazy what they can do. But they they honestly help me out more than they hurt. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, Glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, fur market's down, so it's not worth <laughs> doing that, you know. But I mean, I we trap, we probably trap and shoot over two hundred. I get depredations on several properties for beaver just because I have to due to the regulations of how you can trap them and shoot them and stuff like that, just to be able to deal with them. But, mm-hmm. um, they make my job easier on a standpoint, but then they also are a thorn in my side on the other side. So you just, <laughs> you just have to coexist. Yeah. I got you. So, yeah. 
Well, that's fascinating. Do you ever get over to our part of the world, or do you stay over there in Oklahoma? Man, I I'm a home buddy. I really try I to stay close you. to home. A lot of my a lot of my a lot of my really big gigs are you know close to home. Um, I do make a trek over there in the springtime. I go go try to run into a lot of guys over there, you know, in eastern Arkansas and stuff. So yeah, usually in the you know February is when me and you know Kyle from Seven Thirty Seven and usually a couple other guys will will go we'll go make a route and just kind of start hitting stuff. And we started that about two or three years ago with a couple properties, you know, and then we usually add a couple every year, and you know, before, you know, next year, hopefully we got a couple more properties to look at. And we're not, it's not anything like consulting or anything like, like that. It's just to be able to see different properties yeah. and just see how people do things. Yeah. And, you can learn a lot you know, just from looking at the way somebody else does something. That's really smart. Yeah, I mean, I I tell – I get guys all the time, you know, call me and ask me and college kids and where are you at, you know, how would you get where you're going. And probably the biggest piece of advice – two biggest pieces of advice I give people is, you know, one, you're never done learning. I don't care if you're the, the number one expert in your field in the world. You're always going to learn something. So you have to keep an open mind of just being able to just – take outside resources and figure out how they work or why they work or what mm-hmm. makes it better and what makes it worse. And then the next best thing, the next thing I tell people is, you know, don't burn any bridges. You know, you gotta, you never know the ones you need to walk back. Across. Dude, I've had so many, I've had so many people that just are acquaintances or you shook hands or even if you had a tip with somebody, you know, a neighbor or whatever, just, always make it right you know even if it burns you just make it right and then i've had so many of those come back four mm-hmm. or five years later and you know one of the biggest jobs i have is off of one of those deals they're like hey so-and-so gave me your number and i'm like hey, so-and-so gave you my number he's like yeah he said you're he <laughs> said you're the guy to call you know and i'm like well i'll be dang you know <laughs> yeah, you know five years ago <laughs> Five years ago, we were ready to throw the gloves off and whatever, but, uh-huh. you know, we kind of shook hands and went our own ways. But, I mean, you you just, you know, enemies enemies aren't good, you know. And, I mean, I, the waterfowl industry itself is kind of cutthroat, you know. it's You kind of have clicks and you kind of have whatever. And in my line of work, I, I kind of – I'm kind of the axle to the wagon wheel, you know. I kind of see and talk to everybody you know, and, and everybody wants to know what the other guy's got, and Mm -hmm. you know, what's he, what's he doing, what's he got for bird numbers, you know, and you kind of got to keep some stuff close to your chest, but it's kind of neat being in the middle and, you know, especially on the outfitter side, you know, I've got some really good friends that run outfitting businesses and you, you know, I mean, that's, that's business, man. You know, I mean, those guys, those guys are making a living and, you know, guys will call and say, hey, what? I heard they're killing birds. Where are they killing birds? Are they killing them on sheet water? Are they killing them on Milo, you know, or whatever? And you just you kind of got to keep it close. But you just shake as many hands as you can, make as many friends. You never know. You never know who's going to come back around and yeah, and help you, you know. You might need that. You might need that guy to come bail you out sometime, or you might need that guy to seal the deal on the land deal for you, you know. So, right. 
you just yeah. you just have to you that's just have great. to just treat that's that's excellent you know? yeah that's excellent advice in all areas of life not just duck hunting oh yeah property management so uh thank you for that that's 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 really that's a good spot to end on. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, that, that's good advice, and the world would be a better place if we all treated each other that way and uh, avoided yeah. burning bridges. So No kidding. Um, yeah. Well, man, uh, thank you so much for uh, your time and for just, you know, talking with us about what you do. It's fascinating. I'm In some ways, I'm incredibly jealous, but in other ways, <laughs> I mean, shoot, I'm – I'm living a dream too, and I so I it, it can't I can't be too jealous. Um, I do I do really envy the fact that you get to ride a bulldozer every now and then because I would really like to ride a bulldozer more often. <laughs> yeah, I got guys that can finish dirt a lot better than me, but when it comes like to the tree pushing, I like pushing. Too, I so, bet. You know, I bet. I, bet. Well, I can I can dig holes, but yeah, you bet. I appreciate the opportunity, yeah. guys. Thanks for your time, and man, thank best you. of luck the rest of this winter, and hope y'all finish strong. And January treats you good. Holler at us when you uh, get this way in February, and uh, I'll show you my little piece of dirt that we're piddling with, and you can tell yep. me the things we're doing wrong. <laughs> nah, no, you bet. I'd love to. I like I like getting over there and looking at stuff. So. Perfect. Anytime, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Awesome. Take care, buddy. Thank you, Shane. All right. You too. See you. See ya. Oh, that was a good good conversation. Was. He's a good dude. He is a good dude. Yeah. I was it's really interesting to hear how people do stuff in other parts of the world. It really is. You know, and and I know it's the same country, but man, it's a it's a whole nother planet. Oh, once you cross the river yes. and once you get past Arkansas, it just it changes. Well, Oklahoma Everything as a changes. State is such a different place than really is Tennessee and Arkansas. I mean, Tennessee is different than Arkansas, and Mississippi is different than both. And uh, you know, you go to Oklahoma's dang near the desert compared to what yeah. we are yeah. used to living in. You know, yeah. so it's interesting, and I, it's also interesting that he can do all of what he's doing without any wells. I, I mean, know. I was hearing that. Like, I was like, I thought they would have some elaborate well systems, and I mean, they have some, right? But you know, it sounds like most of it is moving it off yeah. of I'm sitting here, tributaries I've got and everything. A, I've got an electric well running 800 <laughs> gallons a minute I was right now. I'm sitting here thinking, that guy would kill for 800 gallons a minute out of, out of the ground. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> Changes my perspective. Speaking uh, of, wood's filling up? A little bit, yeah. It's it, We're getting water. It's just slow. And, yeah. you know, but it seems like these both these last two rain events have just almost completely missed us in the river bottom, so. That's kind of been frustrating, you know, just across the river, they'll get two inches and, you know, here we've gotten a half inch one time and three quarters another time. So, I mean, we've, we've got a little bit of water and we've got a few ducks. We're actually hoping next week, right after Christmas, yeah. uh, my sister's going to be in town and, um, her kids are, are going to be here. And so we're, we're hoping that'll be fun. Kind of kick it off right after Christmas with a, with a little wood duck shoot or maybe a mallard or two in there. So we'll see. Might mess up. We'll see. Okay. So, well, this will be the last time we talked to y'all before Christmas. Yeah. So, Merry, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas. It's crazy to even. I don't know. For some it reason, it hasn't feel like it this year. I think once I kind of put the camera down, it'll feel like, oh, Christmas is here. Yeah. That's <laughs> a little true. bit. Once we kind of like that's switch true. to family stuff. Yeah. But it definitely doesn't feel like it right now, but it is this weekend, whether you want it to be or not. So, Merry Christmas. I haven't bought any Christmas presents. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> not a single Christmas present. I'm so present. far ahead. I've, 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 <laughs> My wife and kids are going to have a good Christmas this year. This oh, is, mine are but, too, but 
it's just <laughs> hopefully between it, now and then <laughs> everything's just still at the store <laughs> so it's there it's just still at the store well All right before no, no shade for me because that just means you've been working hard that's so. right well before i indict myself any further thanks for joining <laughs> I, us for I, another episode I, I doubt liz is listening this far <laughs> you'd be surprised oh really yeah. merry christmas everybody merry christmas. see you on the next one